Well, good morning and welcome. Welcome to those joining us online. We're going to return this morning to our series on the minor prophets by studying the book of Haggai together. So Haggai, he has an important message for us this morning. He's going to remind us of what it means to be the people of God. So if you're joining us for the first time or maybe you started attending uh, during Easter, uh, we've been studying the minor prophets as a church uh, since last fall. There are 12 uh, of the minor prophets and we've walked through nine of them together. Haggai is the first of kind of this last group of prophets, one of our final three Uh, And we call this group the post-exilic prophets. And basically just what that means, if you'll remember, uh, God's people got hauled off into captivity in Babylon. And when that happened, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, it tore down the temple, it decimated. um, And they were in captivity for between 50 to 70 years. Uh, And then what happened was the Persian Empire came in and they destroyed Babylon. And so when that happened, the Persian king Cyrus issued this decree and said all of the the Israelites could return home. Now, they were still under Persian domination and control, but they had some freedoms that was a little bit different than Babylon. And so we call them the post-exilic prophets because they're speaking to the people in this time, post-exile, as they've returned home to Jerusalem. Um, you know, they did have a lot of freedoms uh, that were different than what they had in Babylon, but they, were, they weren't autonomous. Um, and the blessing uh, that the previous prophets had kind of foretold had not yet occurred. In fact, as the first wave of people returned home, there was just work waiting for them everywhere. Everywhere they look, things needed to be rebuilt. And it was this uh, physically and emotionally exhausting time. And after having been in captivity for so long, they were really struggling with a loss of identity. And this is why God sends Haggai, who speaks into this moment of time, to remind the people of what it means to be the people of God, uh, and to kind of tease and give hope for what was coming in the future. Now, as a side note, this has nothing to do with Haggai, but it's really fascinating to me, maybe just because we spent this time in Easter just walking with Jesus in these final days of his life, but this is the moment of time, this is the Israel that God chose to send his son Jesus. They would continue to rebuild for 500 years, but they would never have the sort of power or influence that they had before captivity. That God chose to send Jesus not when they were at their peak in all of its glory, but he chose to send Jesus to this foreign occupied Israel when it had no global significance and hardly any power at all. It's fascinating to me. But what does it mean to be the people of God? This this was a question the Hebrews were struggling with. Um, God sends the prophet to remind them. But have have you stopped to really think about that question before? What does it mean to be the people of God? Like if you had to just answer that in your mind or in your heart this morning, what would you say? You know, there's probably all sorts of things that come to mind, um, and, and not to show my cards, but I think that we get a lot of things confused. We pile a lot on when we try to define what it means to be the people of God. I mean, does being the people of God mean you regularly attend a certain church? Is that what makes you the people of God? Does voting a particular way make you the people of God? Is a defined set of disciplines and behavior what makes us the people of God? What does it mean? So as you open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1, and I'll give you a minute. It is a very short book. It's one of the shortest books in the Old Testament. Um, If you have trouble finding it, go right to the end of your, right where the Old Testament splits to the New, and it's a couple books back. Um, It's right before the book of Zechariah. As you turn there, we're going to open God's word. 
we're going to ask, what is it that God is saying through the prophet Haggai? 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 And how might it apply to us today? Haggai 1, chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. They'd returned home and they had forgotten God's command as they left captivity to rebuild the temple when they returned. And so they had spent some time working to meet their own needs. They had constructed some very nice homes, uh, but the temple still remained in ruin. And with all of their effort, all of the things they were trying to do, they were unsatisfied. Things were not going well. They labored hard, but it didn't produce much. It didn't satisfy. They were hungry. They drank and were still thirsty. They tried to build security with money, and it kept slipping through their fingers. And God's drawing their attention and asking them to consider why nothing seems to be working. There's a phrase in verse 5 that's repeated over and over again in the book of, of Haggai. And, and whenever you're studying a book of the Bible, when you find something that is repeated again and again, um, take some time to be curious about it because it can often unlock what the meaning is. But the, the phrase that you see again and again is give careful thought to your ways. And Haggai is basically just saying, will you stop for just a minute and just think about things? Have you wondered why you're struggling so hard? Have you given any thought to why nothing you're setting your hands to, nothing that you're working so hard at seems to be working. But giving careful thought to your ways, is, it's deeper than just uh, reflection. It's deeper than just uh, you know, something we do in our minds to kind of think critically about something. There's actually a, a Hebrew figure of speech uh, that, that uh, when you actually translate, give careful thought to your ways, it is put your heart on your roads. I love that, don't you? Put your heart on your roads. If you think about it, a road, it moves in both directions, backwards and forwards, and you'll find as we continue to read that one of the things that was true of God's people is they were struggling uh, in looking back at what had been true before they were in captivity and comparing that to everything that was happening around them and just struggling with discontentment and frustration. Um, but also to put your heart on your roads, um, it's to consider things holistically, like to consider where things are headed, where you are if you want to continue in that way, but to put your heart on. So not just in your head, it's, it's your heart, it's your will. It's an invitation to look beneath the surface, to really take some time and ask some questions of ourselves and of God. Put your heart on your roads. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all labor of your hands. 
Haggai tells them that the reason they are experiencing hardship, the reason that things don't seem to be working as they had planned or succeeding like they had hoped is because they had prioritized the wrong things. Face-to-face as they, with their own needs as they returned home, they jumped into action to meet them on their own, but they neglected the work that God had asked them to do, and they hadn't invited God to be part of it. When they had left captivity, God had commanded that when they returned, they were to rebuild the, the temple in Jerusalem, and the first wave of people that came out of captivity uh, started that work. They did begin it right away, but then they started to uh, encounter some resistance with some of their neighbors, um, some of the other territories kind of around them, and so they just stopped it within the first year. And they had planned to get back to it. It was always that thing they were going to do, but now 17 years had passed, and nothing else had been done. And their actions begin to reveal their priorities. And Haggai arrives and basically says, if you set your priorities straight, if you get these things right, then all the other things that aren't working right now will fall into place. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Matthew 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added, be given unto you. But here is a question that we should be curious about. And even to reflect how we would answer this question, because I think it's enlightening, it'll show us something about our view of God. Why do you think it was so important to God that the temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Why do you think it was so important? Why is he making this a deal right here? Why is this the reason he's kind of frustrating some of the work of their hand? Did God want the temple rebuilt because he's jealous? He's a jealous God, desperate for worship, who withholds blessing and help until he's acknowledged. You could read that and get that from, from the text. Or did God want the temple rebuilt because he understood their loss of identity and their need for the temple in a way that they couldn't understand it? You see, on, the, on just the surface, in a practical sense, the need to rebuild the temple makes sense. Uh, there, there was an urgency to it for the Hebrews, especially, especially in this period of history. The temple was the political, the economic, the social, the judicial, the religious center of their culture and of their nation. Whatever identity they had as a nation would have kind of been rooted here in the temple. And rebuilding the temple would symbolize God's rule over their life. It was a public demonstration to, to one another of what was important, of what would be prioritized. It was a public demonstration to the nations that surrounded them of what was important, of what would be prioritized. But I don't think building a, a, a structure, building the temple, is really what made them the people of God, right? It wasn't just that they had a temple. In a bigger sense, it wasn't about the construction of the temple at all. It was about returning to a way of life that was lost during their captivity. A way of life where they would learn God's will as, as revealed in the scriptures, read and taught in the temple. A place where they w- would experience blessing from obedience by following God faithfully. You see, throughout all of the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God met with his people. It wasn't about the building itself, it was about relationship. It's where relationship grew. It's where the people were formed. This is why it was important to God. This is why he wanted this place built, so that he could be present with them. Watch what happens next. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God 
and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. I love this response. It's about time, right? Like if you've been studying with us since the fall, like the last nine prophets, most often when the prophets bring a word from the Lord, the people are like, meh, maybe they do it for a little while. But it's not this sort of wholehearted obedience. God had formed something in the people in their time in captivity. And here they immediately obey the voice of the Lord. And God's response to that obedience is, I am with you. It's interesting, I don't know if you caught it, but in chapter 1, verse 2, when when God opens the passage, he he first addressed them this way, these people, he said, these people say, there's distance. It's not my people, as God so often would refer to them. He says, these people say, but here, God promises to be with them, to bless, to help. And so the people began the hard work of rebuilding the temple. They set off to do it. And a few months later, as they continued to make progress, a word from the Lord again comes through Haggai to the people. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. You know, as the temple began to take form, those who had seen the original temple, Solomon's temple, uh, were disappointed. It was hard to imagine uh, that anything they could rebuild in their, prop, in their poverty, like in the ways that they were... Um, kind of being ruled over, would look anything like the grandeur of the old temple. And that makes sense. You know, Solomon, he was, he was likely still today one of the richest men that ever walked on the face of the earth. And that temple that, that Solomon built was built in the height of their power and their influence in the world. Um, it is still considered by many to be one of the ancient wonders of the world, Solomon's temple, on par with the pyramids in Egypt and, and the hanging gardens of Babylon. And so in comparison, what they were rebuilding seemed like nothing. And they were so focused on what God had done in the past that they couldn't see what God was about to do. And God, aware of this, reassures, reminds them through Haggai. Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God promises that he's going to make it even greater than the first temple. But not in the way that they expected. It wasn't going to be larger or more beautiful or have more gold and silver and wealth that Solomon's temple did. It wouldn't be something the rest of the world would look at and be in awe of in the same way. But it would be a place filled with God's glory. And it would be a place of peace. And the temple that they were rebuilding 
would be the one that the Prince of Peace would walk into and change everything. God was restoring hope. He was reminding the people that there was something even bigger that he was doing. And then he kind of closes this word that Haggai speaks by reminding them of what their life looked like a few months ago before they put God first, before they invited God into the thing, before they started rebuilding the temple. Verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, hail, yet you did not return to me. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. So what does it mean to be the people of God? Thanks for the history lesson, Kyle, but there's no temple to rebuild, right? Unless Jonathan was joking about the capital campaign to build a new building. He was not. We're not building anything. You know, the temple they were rebuilding, it was more than a building. Like it represented relationship with God. It was where they were to be formed as the people of God. In a deeper sense, the the thing that they longed most for could only be satisfied by the temple that God was asking them to rebuild. They had all these new freedoms. They jumped straight into work. They worked hard. They built things and planted and labored. But none of it satisfied. None of it was really the thing that they most longed for. And the best parallel for us isn't building a church. It's the new temple You know, God's foreshadowing when he says the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. Because 500 years after this moment, after they'd begun this work of rebuilding, Jesus would walk into this temple, this very one. And his death on the cross that we just celebrated last week would tear the temple curtain that separated God's most holy place from the people. And if that new access to God weren't enough, then he would send his Holy Spirit to dwell within us so that the temple is now inside us. And relationship and intimacy and formation are now possible in a way that the people rebuilding this temple could never have imagined. It changed everything. But just because we believe, because we have the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean we don't forget what it means to be the people of God. And we act just like God's people did 2,500 years ago. They were looking to all sorts of things to satisfy. If you go back and look at the verse, it was productivity. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to effort my way through. Fullness, if we just had all the things to eat that we didn't have in captivity. Appetites, if we could just chase after all these desires. Wellness, security, none of it satisfied. It wasn't working. And all of those substitutes only led to a deeper thirst. And the problem wasn't their thirst, is that they were drinking the wrong things to satisfy it. I love the way that Jesus describes himself 
In John 7, John 7, 37, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I think that image of thirst and Jesus as just the, the fountain of living water, it, it so perfectly captures the longing of our hearts. Like we're so thirsty. And we don't often take time to think about it, but if we stop for a minute and we give careful thought to our ways, if we put our heart on our roads, we uncover questions like, is this really all there is? There has to be something more. This isn't the flourishing that I had expected. All of my effort doesn't seem to be working. Jesus describes himself as living water. It's not a poetic or a mystical way of saying it. Living water is just another word for fresh water. It's the stuff we use to, to water plants and crops. It's what we need to drink to live. And the opposite of fresh water is salt water. Salt water looks and feels like fresh water, but it's not the same. If you drink it for any length of time, any large amount of salt water, uh, it'll eventually kill you. And here's, here's a crazy thought. Like a person could be stranded in the middle of the ocean, surrounded on every side by miles and miles and miles of salt water, and still die of thirst. The more salt water you drink, the thirstier you get. Anything we are chasing apart from Jesus is salt water. And it only makes us thirstier. It comes up short of the life we dream and we long for. Jesus, the fountain of living water, is the only thing that can satisfy our thirst. How often do we forget? And when we feel the thirst of insecurity, for example, do we turn to the Lord and bring that stuff to him or do we buy clothes, work out, clamor for attention, judge others or put others down to make us feel better? When we feel the thirst of loneliness or dissatisfaction with our life, do we take it to the Lord or do we eat, watch TV, fantasize about lives that aren't ours? God's invitation through the prophet Haggai is for us to put our hearts on our roads. Just ask the question, what are we seeking? What are the ways we're seeking life and satisfaction and quenching our thirst apart from God? What are the ways we're drinking salt water instead of living water, fresh water? This is what it means to be the people of God. We take every thirst, every need, every longing, first to him. That is what it means to be the people of God. When Jesus is the center, when our identity is built upon him, when he is the thing that we chase after, the rest is added. And so to close this morning, I wonder if we could follow God's invitation through the prophet Haggai to give careful thought to our ways to just take a minute here at the end before we jump into song and ask this question. What are the ways I am seeking life, satisfaction, or quenching my thirst apart from God? Would you invite him to direct and lead you 